Hello, my name is Rachel Peterson, and I am an MDiv student at Harvard Divinity School, and I helped co-organize the talk you will soon hear titled Sacred Sabotage, a Zen practitioner and earth activist reflects on the intersection of direct action and spiritual practice amidst ecological crisis. This talk was given Thursday, March 23rd, 2023, and was co-sponsored by the HDS Plant Consciousness Reading Group, the Interspecies Dialogue, the Ecotheology Group, and Harvard Buddhist Community. In his 1838 address delivered here at Harvard, Ralph Waldo Emerson argued that moral intuition is a better guide to moral sentiment than religious doctrine. Put more simply, a life of virtue and goodness can be hindered by institutions sometimes rather than helped. Of course, Emerson would deeply influence Thoreau, who would argue in his seminal essay, Civil Disobedience, that humans must not allow institutions like the state to make them agents of injustice. A quick note that some people mistake the word civil in Thoreau to mean nonviolent, but that's not how Thoreau meant it. For example, both Thoreau and Emerson revered the abolitionist John Brown, who was convicted and executed in 1859 for leading a slave rebellion at Harper's Ferry. And here we are today, most of us trapped in political, economic, petrochemical, and other institutions that render us agents of ecological injustice and recruit us into widespread destruction of the biosphere and pollution of the atmosphere. I won't belabor the state of affairs. Many of us are familiar with the scale and speed of species extinction, habitat destruction, and climate change. The United Nations IPCC issued yet another report this year saying there is a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And despite well-meaning, well-organized efforts around the world, we have no meaningful signs of progress. No major country or economy is on track to meet climate goals. As historian Andreas Malm has put it, the ruling classes really will not be talked into action. In the face of our dire situation, call for increased tactics are on the rise. Yet, as the recent murder of Earth activist Tortuguita, as well as the history in the United States of the FBI clampdown on domestic radical activist groups show, direct action can come at a lethal cost. So what do we do? What are the most effective roles of civil disruption in the intensifying battle to address environmental catastrophe? How can spiritual practice inform radical direct action? And how does taking action deeply impact those who dare to act? We were so fortunate to have Tim Ream, a seasoned activist and deep Zen practitioner, who has been asking himself these questions for years. I had the great fortune of meeting Tim at a Zen retreat he held at Tassajara Monastery in the Ventana Wilderness of California, where he led a beautiful week-long retreat for Earth activists to deepen our spiritual practice and help us build resilience. Tim is a longtime Earth activist and Zen practitioner. 
He received lay initiation from Tenshin Reb Anderson in 1994 and has since engaged in frequent intensive residential practice, mostly at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center and Green Gulch Farm. He is an organizer, campaigner, writer, filmmaker, and environmental attorney. His activism spans everything from direct action and civil disobedience like tree sitting and road blockading to successful lawsuits to protect wolves and other species. I hope you enjoy Tim's talk. Thanks to Rachel and to uh, the groups that she mentioned to help make this possible and to you all for coming. I, I really appreciate it. Um, it feels uh, like, you know, there's a, a sort of weight speaking at Harvard. I know that for all of you, it's something that you're engaged in on a regular basis. For me, it's a big deal being in this room with this famous 1838 talk that was given. Um, so I felt like the only appropriate response probably was to start off with my favorite bumper stickers, probably as a counterweight to that. Um, number three on the list, and they all come from Eugene, Oregon, where I currently reside, and um, all have religious themes, which is why I thought maybe I could, I could speak about them at Harvard Divinity School. My third favorite was um, God's original plan was to hang out in a garden with naked vegetarians. That's a pretty good one. My second one is a little more cynical. Um, it said, God was my co-pilot, but we crashed in the Andes and I had to eat him. <laughs> I like. But the one that's most apropos, that I'm, that's the real reason I'm saying this is, um, my favorite bumper sticker is the one that says, uh, be a revolutionary, practice your religion. <laughs> and uh, boy, if we had people practicing their religions a little more... Um, uh, a little more strictly or a little more, I don't know what, uh, exuberantly, what a different world it might be, right? Um, <clears throat> I should start out by saying I, I'm not going to give you an academic talk at any level whatsoever. This is going to be about my own lived experience um, and, and what I've gleaned from that, not because I'm well-read or uh, as smart as any of you, probably. Um, I want to start out by um, checking out um, if any of you or what which religious traditions you might practice. So I'm just kind of curious, people practicing the Christian tradition, you know, if you're willing to throw up a hand. Okay, a couple people. Um, Buddhist tradition. All right, a couple there. Uh, pagan? Islam? Oh, um, Ramadan Mubarak. <laughs> first full day of Ramadan today? Yeah, first full day of Ramadan. Um, Hindu? Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, okay, interesting. Um, and then some, anybody want to say one that I didn't ask? Uh, oh, Judaism? Uh-huh. And any, more, any? Or less, more or less Unitarian. Uh-huh, okay. Unitarian. Okay. Yeah, a couple there. Great. No, no name. <laughs> no name, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, why did you want I was born into that religion, but I didn't really Uh-huh, okay. Well, it's good. That's, wow, that's very ecumenical. A little bit surprising, but maybe it shouldn't be, but that's great. Um, I, I can speak, uh, I was raised Catholic, and um, I practiced Zen for quite a long time. So when I talk about spiritual practice, I'm coming from my own experience there. I am not uh, an expert on world religions, um, and so some of what I say might not resonate, but I'll, I'll try as much as possible to be as inclusive as possible with what I have to say. A couple quick words about me. Um, my activism, uh, <laughs> probably most of you aren't old enough to know this, but I say my activism started when uh, that Native American man in full Sioux regalia went on the horse over the hill through the litter and looked down at the interstate highway. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. The, the, one of the older people probably in the crowd. <laughs> um, 
a, a famous commercial from the 70s by the Ad Council. And he, he walks through, he's in full regalia, he's on a horse, he looks so noble, weathered, lined face. And uh, he, he was w w going along on his horse and suddenly there's trash and more trash. And he comes to a rise and he looks down and there's like eight lanes of traffic and smog going back and forth. And it was the kind of thing that like, that was it for me. Like, I got it. Like there used to be a way of living on the planet that was different and it was respectful and it was beautiful. And, and we're not doing that now. And, and that to me is the power of story. And that's gonna be a recurring theme over and over with, with my activism. It's about making stories and then telling stories. And, and I think it's the most important activism. I'll try to explain why I think that. Um, I, I, went into, I, I was a conservative Catholic Midwestern boy. Um, voted for Ronald Reagan twice. <laughs> um, which proves anybody can change, right? And then um, went into the Peace Corps. And I was in a little country called Lesotho, surrounded by South Africa, during apartheid, when the United States policy toward apartheid was constructive engagement with the apartheid regime um, under uh, the first Bush. Um, and I got a, a, a radical uh, awakening there around what my country was like and what global politics are like and how amazingly cruel human beings can be to each other um, and, and so on. And it was, a, it was a real awakening for me. I came back, I worked for the United States Environmental Protection Agency for a few years, um, learned a bunch and tried to be an activist within that context. And when I felt like I couldn't anymore, I left. But three and a half years working for the EPA and living like uh, a combination Zen monk and um, Peace Corps volunteer. I saved up enough money in three and a half years that it funded my activism for the next decade. I spent 10 years after that basically living off that money. Um, I did a lot of forest activism, tree sitting, road blockading, attacking corporate boardrooms, stuff like that. Um, did some anti-globalization uh, activism um, where uh, probably the, I went back to Lesotho and uh, organized dam affected people who were getting thrown off their land and they were getting submerged under these gigantic dams. Um, probably some of the most effective activism I ever did, although it, it did include some crazy chapters like um, getting caught sneaking into the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and um, probably being drugged by agents of the South African state. I'm serious, long story, can only tempt you with it and not tell you. And then I engaged in some acts of sabotage, which I don't mostly talk about, although they certainly would be federal felonies. I never burned anything. Um, and I tried to do it in as principled a way as possible. Um, so I, I, you know, I have a little bit of ground to speak about some of this stuff. I've been doing Zen for about 30 years, off and on, mostly residential. I don't have to say too much, except that it's been a tremendously important influence in my life, both the active practice of sitting and also absorbing the teachings that go back from Shakyamuni Buddha through teachers like Dongshan and, and Dogen um, in the Soto Zen tradition. And then I guess the last thing to say about me is my life has been organized around the principle of biocentrism and trying to figure out how to live a life of honoring all beings, um, both in keeping with the Zen and, and Buddhist practice and many spiritual traditions practices, um, but, uh, but also because of living in a time of uh, incredible species extinction um, and feeling like humans have had a lot of problems with each other in a lot of different ways over time. And I believe that at some point in the future, we can overcome those problems one or another eventually but what will be left of the planet when we do. Um, I don't believe that the scientists will be able, even if they can create a mastodon out of some kind of, you know, modern, you know, genetic engineering that doesn't bring back mastodon habitat, species are going extinct. 
one to 300 per day, depending on which scientific you know, range you believe in. Um, and I don't believe we're gonna recreate those ecosystems in the in test tubes. So what will be left when humans figure it out? And, and systems can't stay out of balance forever. <laughs> it will come back into balance at some point. The question is what is left? And I sort of feel like, you know, one of the things that's beautiful about, about Buddhism is it helps you understand, and it's probably I could say like the Hindu roots to Buddhism as well, helps you understand time frames, I think, in a, in a, in a you, can, you can sort of like, get a better sense of the profoundness when you, when you really dive into impermanence and, and think about, about these cycles upon cycles, kalpas upon kalpas of time that have, have potentially gone on. And, and then, you know, also science says, what, maybe human beings split from chimpanzees, common ancestor, eight million years ago, maybe? The great extinction with uh, the, the, the asteroid in the Yucatan was 60, is it 63, 67 million years ago? I figure we're playing for about a million to three million years worth of evolution. <laughs> with maybe we will have only lost, you know, less than that if we really come around as a species in the next few years, maybe. And then if we continue on the path that we're continuing on, you know, maybe it'll be literally like several million years before we kind of are back to a planet with the kind of biodiversity that we had before, which is a huge deal. And we shouldn't trivialize it because I've had people say to me, well, we can't kill everything and life will keep going and it'll all come back. And there is a peace in that. There is a way that you can relax into that, but there's also a way that it can become a justification for anything. And so we have to be really careful with playing those kind of, with those kind of time frames around moral questions, I think. So, um, so, I want to talk just real quick up front about violence. Um, <laughs> there's, there's no better way for corporations and the state to make activists look um, scary and ineffective by, than by calling them violent. Um, we've seen it with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it's been used on countless movements. The labor, un labor movement has seen it. And of course, environmentalists have been labeled as eco-terrorists for, for some time. Um, and in fact, I was just telling Rachel earlier, I, I think probably the first time the word eco-terrorism appears in a congressional report was around 1995-1996, where a subcommittee uh, wrote a report. It was just Republicans that signed the report, and they mentioned the eco-terrorism at Warner Creek. At Warner Creek, we were engaged in a peaceful blockade um, where we had built a fort across the road and held it for uh, 333 days to uh, keep uh, uh, a forest that was off limits to logging from being logged. And um, nonetheless, that eco-terrorism label was on there. And there was one person named in that report, and it happened to be me, uh, named, named by name. Um, and so that, that word has been used to discredit us for a long, long time. But when we look at violence, it's everywhere all around us all the time. And certainly we can see that in, you know, in things like the way labor movements or the Black Lives Matter movement have been put down. Um, we can see it in, in systematic uh, uh, violence around the world in the form of war, rape used as a weapon, or just the common, the, the, the common nature of rape and sexual assault in our society. There is violence all over the place. And, and the system is so violent towards species. When you take a biocentric point of view, when you fully think that like all of these species have an equal right to honor and respect at some level, then 
then it's such a violent system. And then to, to say what, what environmental activists are doing is violent is just so hard to swallow. Um, but, you know, we can go even farther, right? Because anybody who's gardened, you know, you're violent towards the worms and you're violent towards the bugs that are trying to eat your broccoli. And, and so it's really under, important for us to understand that sort of continuum of violence and what goes into it and where we fall on it to get right with ourselves. But then at the same time, understand the media environment and the way in which any act that can be claimed to be violent can be used against activists and how that can actually hurt the cause. And, and there was a common thing that was said back, I, I, I was a kind of a, I was an informal spokesperson for people that were engaged in, 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 in very strong actions. And a common thing that we used to say is um, destruction of property isn't violent. You know, but if I pick up this podium and I like throw it through that window while I'm screaming, I have not touched any one of you, but probably you will have felt violated as if I had engaged in an act of violence. And so we need to be very clear that, you know, just because you do something in the dark at night and no people were hurt doesn't necessarily mean that other people haven't had their sense of safety, their perceived sense of safety affected by it. And therefore, to them, it is a violent act. And so if to them it's a violent act, well, then, then there are ramifications for it. And that just has to be accounted for. And I'm not, I'm not standing up here in the cult of nonviolence saying, like, any violent action is a wrong action. I'm saying it's a factor that has to be considered in anything that we do. All right. Now, one more thing about violence. The kinds of actions that activists have to take to be effective can be construed as violent in a highly correlated way to the number of people that we have available to engage in the action. What I mean by that, let's say we were engaged in an action against the dean of the divinity school, you know, and, and there was only Rachel was available, but she had to stop him for 24 hours from doing something horrible he was about to do. I don't know, what does she have available? She can talk nice, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't respond to that. She pulls out a gun and she holds him hostage in his office for 24 hours until the time passes and he can't do the bad act. Right? So there was only one of her. She didn't have much of a choice. You know, what could, what could, you know she, she's forced to take these extreme actions by virtue of the fact that she is called to act and there are not other people around her. But if we had a thousand people, we would all sing songs and hold hands as we marched into his office and then we would sit down and we would not let him leave for 24 hours. And we would tell him how much we loved him and we would tell him how he was wrong, but how he was right about a bunch of other things and it was great. And if we had another couple thousand, we'd send them to the Harvard trustees' houses, you know, where they would also sing and be joyous and carry signs and make puppets and play in a band and dance together and it would be peaceful and beautiful. You know, and would achieve the same result of 24 hours, right? So really, in some ways, a lot of times people who are taking action are doing a strong action, forceful action, or action that can be construed as violent, are doing so because they're the only ones available. And if somebody does, if they don't do it, nobody else can, and then the tactics that are available to them are highly limited by the number of people that are willing to engage with them. So there's my little rant on violence. Here comes my rant on activism. Um, so I, I would say, I have a kind of a unique definition for activism, um, but it's, it's not the be all end all, but I like to think of activism as risking privilege. You're engaged in activism to the extent that you are risking privilege. That could be your 
privilege of, of your race, your able-bodiedness, your color, your gender, your sexuality, your language, your socioeconomic status, your education, and on and on and on. But to the extent you are not just utilizing those privileges for your own or maybe your family's gain, but you are actually risking that privilege. This might cost me a job. Um, this might hurt me. I might lose standing with a lot of social groups and so on and so on. To the extent that you are now putting yourself out there and, uh, and even just taking less than you could be taking otherwise, um, you are engaged to my mind in activism. Activism isn't the be all and end all. There are a bunch of people doing great work that are not being activists. There are scientists that are um, squeezing one more percent of electricity out of solar panels, one more percent of efficiency out of solar panels. And they're getting paid a lot of money if they're successful at doing it. And I'm glad they're doing it. I want more efficient solar panels and I want them to use less resources and I want to be able to recycle them and I want them to be able to be installed on a more efficient business model. And I just don't call that activism, but it's still effective work that might be really beneficial to the earth over and over again. But, but if you want to get activists about it to me, you're putting something on the line. And generally what you're putting on, your, on the line is some privilege that you have. Um, now, I, I alluded to it earlier, but I think the, the, the most important activism that we can do is changing narratives. And we change narratives for two, two reasons, to, to change people's minds and to recruit people into our movement. I say that there's no more action that is more powerful than recruiting another activist. Right? It's a, it's a pyramid scheme, people. Like, this is way more than Amway or something like that, right? This is like, if you are one activist and you say, do something that makes now you two activists, you have doubled the effectiveness of your activism in your life, you know? Um, and, and it's even better if they're young, they'll live longer. And even better if you can figure out ways to bring them into the movement that makes them effective, makes them activated, and makes them um, not burn out that they can be in this movement in a way that works long term, right? But so it's not it's not that simple. And 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 likewise, or in the reverse, if you engage in an action that somebody that was involved looks at and says, "That's that's not what I'm about," and then leaves the movement or leaves activism, I don't care. Like your action must have been pretty great otherwise for it to have been worthwhile if it's driving people out of the movement, right? And it's not always easy to know what this is like. I, I, I wasn't at an action, but I was part of a, a, a campaign where a woman brought uh, uh, to a protest a squirt gun filled with her urine, and she shot it at the Forest Service officials. She thought she was doing good. You know, it's easy to sit here, and we all I'm looking at all these urine faces that you all have right now. They don't look good. You know, like, obviously, it was like, in retrospect, it was a stupid thing, but she was like, I'm going to show them. Right? Okay, Symbol, symbolism of a gun shooting a bodily fluid on someone else. You know, I don't know if there are people that walked away, but if they did, like, boy, if you'd have stayed home that day, it would have been so much better for our campaign. Right? So we have, this, we have this metric that I'm proposing of setting things up by asking ourselves, did that bring more people in? Did it? I, I say we, we need to educate people. Then we need to um, activate people. We need to empower people, and then we need to activate people, right? So we need to help them understand the issues. Then we need to let them know that they actually have influence and help them understand different ways in which they have influence. And then we need to get them out there into a place where they can use the power that they have.
to actually be useful. And then at the next step after that, if they themselves become replicators and are recruiting more people into the movement because of the stories that they're telling, the ways they're changing minds, then you know, we've, got, we've got something going at that point, right? So, so we're trying to change narratives. We, we can do that, we can do that with a, a, a march through Harvard Square with a sign. I, I was once at, a, at, a, um, at a, a, a pride march back, you know, I was raised to be homophobic, and I hadn't fully gotten over it in New York um, in the early 90s. And I think um, uh, there was, the ACT UP folks were like really getting, getting into it out there. Uh, but there was a big uh, pride march where every, all the different groups were going by. And um, uh, several uh, gay men were, were marching through chanting, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> like, yeah, I just have to get used to it, right? And like, it's so simple. So, so sometimes it's just an idea on a sign. Sometimes it's just hearing a message. Because, you know, we hear this from Zen teachers all the time. Like a student is just ripe. They're ripe for that kind of awakening experience, right? They just need to hear the, the thing, to think the thought or the not think the thought that like gets them to, to a different point of view. And, and there are a lot of people out there. So it can be like that. But it also can be an action where, you know, to, to use the example I did earlier, we built, we built a 10-foot high foot, uh, fort out of salvaged burned logs with a moat and a drawbridge. Behind it was a 10 foot wide, 10 foot deep trench across the road that we had dug. We had a 20 foot high tower up above, you know, that was staffed with activists 24 seven, right? That, that, that made the front page of the New York Times, even though it's happened in a forest way up in the woods in, in Oregon. Um, and that picture tells a story, right? Think of tree sitting, right? Just the act of sitting in a tree. If, if you're in the old school thought, forests, well, that's a lot of timber out there. That's a lot of money. We can do a lot of building with that. that you know, that's a, a, a way of, that's the story about forests for a long time for a lot of people in this country. And somebody sits in a tree and you have to be like, well, now that's a different story. They're risking their life in that tree instead of cutting it down to make money. Hmm, you know? So sometimes... Sometimes it can be something very simple like that, and sometimes you have to take people through a lot more steps to get him like that. But over and over again, I think what actions are about, the reason to sit in that tree, the reason to build that, that um, fort, the reason to carry that sign, is we're trying to change somebody's story. We're trying to change their narrative relationship to the world, and, and then hopefully turn them not only into a believer, but actually into an actor that can act on for, for the benefit of the world. Ultimately, coercion's not going to work, <laughs> right? <clears throat> it's not like we could come up with an action. Like, okay, we've got about 15 to 20 of us here. We could come up with an action where we can force them to stop climate change, right? Somehow. I don't know what it is. We could nuclear bombs or something and threaten to blow stuff up if they don't shut down the refineries. Like, even if it's fantastical, you can't really come up with a plan where you're going to co coerce the word. Sooner or later, they're going to take your bombs away and do the exact same thing they were doing unless they have a different approach to the world. We simply can't force... You see this sometimes in Congress. Sometimes lately, I feel like um, the left was, was, has been great in the last couple of years of forcing through some meaningful legislation that 
We know darn well, or even regulations, that we know darn well if the Republicans ever get in power again, which they likely will, <laughs> that they're going to turn it all around because we haven't changed enough hearts and minds around the issue. Um, now, I don't think that gay marriage could ever be illegal in the United States again. Maybe in certain places it can be because hearts and minds there haven't been changed enough. But in the United States, enough hearts and minds. And it was not that way 30 years ago. 30 years ago, gay marriage did not poll with a majority. But love is love. And, and these are your neighbors. And people changed hearts and minds. And they, and they changed the world in doing that in the sense that they changed how people thought about themselves, how they thought about each other. And that kind of activism has, has lasting impact. And unfortunately, that's what we have to do about all this stuff. And by the way, just because we have 50% doesn't mean we win either because the whole deck is rigged against us, as we all well know. But it's hard to have 90% of the people agreeing with you and not be able to get something done, you know? Doesn't mean 90% have to act. But coercion's not gonna work. So what that means is we need a broader movement. Um, it just has to be where we're going. And, and it, that's sort of perfect in this more recent world, from an environmental activist point of view, has been doing it for a long time, more, more recent world of intersectional action, where, where suddenly we're understanding you, you, you can't treat environmentalism by itself, just like you can't treat race by itself, just like you can't treat gender by itself, and, and on and on and on. We need, to, we need to have activists that are working around po poverty issues and around labor movement issues, working with activists that are working on, on uh, race and queer activists and the environmental activists all working together. Um, something that nowadays has been called woke, which I find really interesting because another word for woke is awakened, <laughs> which is the whole goal of Zen practice or Buddhist practice, right? So if you're, if you're against woke, what are you for, asleep? Like, is that what anti-woke is? Isn't anti-woke asleep, you know? It's like, it's like their motto is like, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. I just don't think it's going to sell over the long term. But, but this broader concept of intersectionality as a way of, of acting together, um, it, it, it strikes me as, as um, exactly what's needed. And hopefully it's, it's going to be a, a positive a, a benefit for us. Now, I want to say something about lifestyle activism. Um, Rachel said a few things like, we can't, we can't just become vegans and suddenly the world's better, become, drive electric cars and the world becomes, um, like, the climate change goes away. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to do those things. Um, we don't have to buy an electric car because bikes are better and walking is good. But, um, and, and we don't have to become vegan, but we can eat the meat that we're eating. Um, and, and I say that this lifestyle thing is important for a couple of different reasons. First of all, a simplistic lifestyle is where we have to go. <laughs> you know, we, we can't keep living the way we were taught to live. We can't live the way, or most of us were taught to live, I should say. We can't live uh, the way that, you know, the TV and, and magazine commercials teach us to live. American consumption, the American diet. This is not the way we're... So, so we have to have a simplistic lifestyle that is a light touch on the earth because we are modeling what needs to happen. And then on top of that, it hurts. If you're, if you're paying attention, it hurts to live that other lifestyle. To, to be, you know, excessively consumptive, to throw perfectly good things away, to buy things that you know you really don't need. It's, 
it's, a, it's an impediment to your spiritual practice as far as I'm aware. And, and it's painful in a way that, that life doesn't have to be. So I do think that living a lifestyle of simplicity where you're asking yourself the question over and over again, is this good for the earth? Like over and over and over again every day um, until you figure out certain things. And then still when new things come up, over and over and over again today. I was like, oh, Rachel, I need some water. I was like, no, single-use plastic, I'm sorry. You know? So she found me this, and I had a look at it. I was like, is that good? I think that's pretty good. You know? It's certainly better than single-use plastic, right? It's got a little plastic top on it. I'm getting thirsty. I don't know if I'm going to crack this thing open or not. But like over and over, over and over, we're like asking, like, how do we reduce the footprint? How do we reduce the footprint? I think it's a critical part of activism. We can't do it without it. And you know... Uh, and, and, and like I said, it's good for our hearts, and, and it's, it's also what monks do. And monks are generally the people in our spiritual traditions that are sort of like being most revolutionary and practicing their religion um, with the most fervor or uh, strictness or um, completeness, let's say, right? So, so figuring out what that version is for each of us, and I think it's different from each of us, and everybody has their... They're little things. I'm not going to try to tell anybody the, the specific thing. But, but um, figuring out how to lower that footprint seems like a critical part of our activism. And then you know what happens if you don't do that, right? Um, that's when, uh, uh, you know, somebody looks at Greta Thunberg or Al Gore or Jane Fonda and says, like, oh, look what they did. They got in a car or they flew in a plane or they did something like that. And then uses that as a way to undermine all of their message as lift. Like, well, they're clearly not living their values, so therefore, you don't have to. Right? That's the message that corporate America desperately wants you to believe. If the messenger isn't perfect, you don't have to listen to them. So we can't be perfect, but we can, we can make efforts in that regard. And, you know, this is another way of recruiting activists, right? Somebody's the first one to put solar panels on their house in the neighborhood. And there's, there's already studies showing that in a neighborhood where the first person to put them on it's far more likely that other people will put them on their roof than in neighborhoods where nobody has yet, right? So be in the first one to ride your bike to work. Be in the one that's at the table that says, yeah, I'm vegetarian, I'm sorry, I don't eat that. Like, it models a behavior and it helps. I, I became a vegetarian the day I met my first vegetarian. <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest, there weren't any. Like, I went to a camp out and there was this woman and she was cute. And she said she was a vegetarian. I was like, I at that time was getting a graduate degree in um, experimental psychology and doing brain surgery on goldfish and putting microelectrodes into their brains. And I didn't feel good about it. But I'd never met a vegetarian before, you know? And uh, so, so she said, I'm vegetarian. I was like, okay, I will be too. <laughs> you know? I, it took a while. It took a while. I went to Africa right after that and I didn't do good there. But anyway, we model these behaviors and, we, and, we, and that's a form of activism for us. Now, getting into more radical action, you hear the term direct action a lot of times. And I have a very strict definition of direct action. To me, direct action means action that actually stops the oppressive behavior. You know? Um, so they're, they're logging a, an old growth forest and you block the road for an hour or a day or 330 days. To me, that's direct action. You know, you actually, but, but um, you've actually stopped logging at, for a certain amount of time. Um, you know, uh, somebody is behaving 
in an inappropriate and oppressive way towards somebody else, and you actually get in front of them and say, no, 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 you can't talk to her like that. You know, and like, this is, to me, this is direct action. You are directly stopping an oppressive behavior. But, but most people refer to direct action. It isn't direct action. It could be daring and courageous action. It could be highly effective action. But like dropping a banner off of a building, which I'm not, I'm not against banner dropping at all, but this isn't direct action in my book, right? The banner, I mean, if because of the banner they stop work at that office, okay, but that's not usually what happens, right? It's a messaging device, right? But, but even when direct action is direct, that's usually not its benefit. You stop logging for an hour or even a day, okay, that caused them a little bit of pain and a little bit of money, but that forest is still probably going down. The benefit there is you, you, you created the story and you have the opportunity now to tell a story. You create a story that people cared enough that they locked themselves with bicycle locks by their necks to a bulldozer. And because of that, they shut down logging for a day. And, and by the way, here's one of them right now. Would you like to talk to them? So, so you've created a story. People care enough about that. Why do they care about those forests so, more, so much? Oh, I never even realized you could stop logging. Wait a minute, that was public lands? That, I thought we weren't, we thought we weren't like, wait, that's old growth? I thought we weren't logging old growth. All these stories are, are, are able to be told now. And we have storytellers, the, the woman who locked her neck, the press person who's doing the press work, and so on, right? So we have created a story, and now we have created opportunities to tell the story. This is the value, to me, of most direct actions. And yet, <laughs> most activists don't necessarily think that way as they're planning and engaging in actions. Because they want to stop logging, of course, right? But how do you stop in a way that's interesting? <laughs> Dare I say, sexy. Uh, something that people feel like they could participate in. Um, something that puts, if you, can put, if you can put your listener into the story, then the story takes hold much deeper, right? So you know who is locked to the, to the bulldozer? A 16-year-old girl and, a, and an 85-year-old man. And you know what? It's her grandpa. Now we're all in the story together, you know? Because, you know, we've all been 16 and we've all had grandpas and, and like, you know, we can, wow, that's, that's really cool. Like, that's, that's getting me in my heart. Right? It didn't stop logging any longer than, than the other action where the person in like camouflage with a mask covering everything except that part of their face was up there screaming like, fuck logging, you know? Didn't stop logging any more or less, but it might have had a bigger impact as an action. So when we, when, we, when we think about strong actions, and, and, and much of this has been done before. <laughs> so when we think creatively about strong actions, what hasn't been done before, what can be, what evolves the tactics, what embeds the message right into the, tree sitting, you can't, you can't message screw over tree sitting. 
There's somebody 200 foot up in that tree because she cares so much about the tree. It's really hard to spin that person into an eco-terrorist. You know, the message is embedded, the love is there. And so when we figure out ways to do these actions creatively with embedded messages, with stories that can be told in widespread ways, um, we change hearts and we change people's lives. There, will, there are people that have come up to me and said, I saw your movie, I rewound it, I watched it again, I rewound it. After the third time, I called in, I quit my job, and now I'm sitting in this tree. Like this can happen, you know? And not that it has to happen that way, but, it can, but changing hearts and minds, that's, that's really what we have to think about as we're thinking about how to do these actions. Which, what, what am I at with time? Because I'm recording, so I don't, can't tell. Okay, so we, okay, so 15 is good. That's right. Yeah, okay. Okay. I don't know if I'll go that long, but, um, yeah, yeah, we have, we have, we have, we'll have questions and conversations, stuff like that, so. Um, <clears throat> so let me, let me switch gears to spiritual practice just a little bit more now. A lot of what I've described that I think we need to do to be more effective activists is, in my mind, much more easily taken on when people have a spiritual practice. When someone has their center about them, when someone understands the depth of their connection, not only to nature, but to the rest of humanity, when someone has a set of moral guidelines guiding their actions, when someone has practiced in a way that they found a sense of inner calm within themselves. When someone has, through a spiritual tradition, processed some of their trauma that they have grown up with, they, they are in a better place for all of these reasons to go forward and be effective with these actions. There are a lot of people out there that are, um, that are very angry and they're doing nothing about it except abusing their minds or their bodies. And there are very, people, very many people out there that are very angry and they've latched on to activism and they're pissed off and they're going to get some of that anger out in their actions. And, um, and that they're, they're not always the most effective activists. And many of them grow through this process and um, some of them burn out and some of them get thrown out. Um, and so spiritual practice both uh, informs an individual which direction to go and helps them walk that path in a way that is um, oftentimes more effective. In, in Zen, we talk about heart-to-heart -heart transmission. Sometimes we talk about warm hand to warm hand. Um, it's the idea of one face to another, face-to-face -face transmission. And this is a transmission of the Dharma, but this is also a transmission of love. And, and that can be a transmission of love of the earth or love of whatever is your cause in your activism. Um, and a practice that helps you be able to be with another human being heart to heart, face to face, and showing who you truly are and showing how, how your heart really is, is the most effective way, I think, of really communicating. So this again is formed by spiritual practice and, I, and why I think practice, practice in, in 
spirit traditions I'm familiar with are conducive to more effective activism. I say that right before I get into the concept of force. So there are radical actions um, that require a, a lot of courage, that risk a lot of privilege, that don't necessarily require much force. And um, there are also ways that, um, you know, you can throw a brick through a window while you're wearing a black hoodie some night um, and, and no darn well, you're probably going to get away. And if you do get caught, you're probably going to get a slap on the wrist. And um, so the first thing to, to just, that, that I guess what I'm trying to say is we, we, we get mistaken in thinking that the more force that's brought to bear, the, the, not necessarily the better the action, but like it's of a higher nature than other actions, you know? Like somehow if you could do that forceful thing, you were a stronger activist, you were a more intense activist, you were more, you were a, more of a believer than the others were, you know? And it's not always necessarily the case. I know it's kind of funny when you say it like that, but, <laughs> but it's very easy to get caught up into that. Um, and so when I talk about force, it can be a lot of different things, right? Um, and, and, there, and, and I'm not, okay, first of all, caveat, I'm not saying forceful actions are wrong actions. Um, definitely not. Um, and I, but I will continue to use the rubric of, does this change hearts and minds for the, for the, for the, for the positive? Does this bring more people into our movement? Um, but we have a lot of forceful actions happening all around us all the time. I mean, you know, the Earth Liberation Front, um, which, you know, I, I, I was engaged in forced activist, forced actions with quite a few people that were arrested and went to prison for, for burning down various things. Um, bulldozers and earth moving equipment, uh, buildings, uh, buildings under construction, Vail Ski Resort, and so on. Um, didn't know at the time who was doing what, but it was all eventually it revealed at a certain point that these people were engaged in these actions. Um, they used a lot of force. Rachel asked me today, like, were they successful actions? And, and I told her, I don't know how I can judge that myself. It's a real, we, first of all, we don't know. You know, we don't know the impact of any given action. They burned down this, the partially constructed Vail Ski Resort, and then the ski resort was eventually built. There was an above ground movement that was trying to stop it at the same time, where everybody was investigated by the FBI. It caused a lot of problems for them. Um, the activists then went on to burn other things. And I'm not saying that they were wrong for doing it. But most of them snitched on each other, went to prison, and don't do that kind of stuff anymore. And as far as I know, most of them are not engaged in, among the snitches, not engaged in activism you know, much at all that, that I know of. And I'm willing to be corrected if I'm wrong about that. So some of the strongest actions, not necessarily the best. But again, like what's going on in Cop City right now, you know, in, in Georgia, people are trying to defend a forest and prevent a um, paramilitary uh, police training uh, facility from being built. Um, you know, they attack cops with, they, they proudly claim they attack cops with rocks and um, firecrackers and things like that. Um, and then the cops went over to the, the music festival nearby and arrested a bunch of people there and have the, many of them still in jail right now on terrorism charges. Um, 
does it bring people into the movement or not? I mean, it, it probably brings certain people into the movement and it's probably highly effective in a certain group of people. And, and I'm not, a, you know, I'm, I, I believe that's a person of color led movement down there or campaign down there. And I don't know how it affects um, the people of color living in the Atlanta area who are trying to stop that facility from being built. Um, it's, it's hard for me to say, but, but that to me is the, is, the, is the metric I'm trying to evaluate it based on. And so a few more things about force. Asking ourselves when we engage in force, are we being the change? You know the classic line, right? Um, you know, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. Are we being the change? You know, how does it work if everybody does this? We'll, a, a problem with a lot of these vanguard actions is most people can't do them. You know, most, even if, even if I'm like, yeah, I am glad those bulldozers all got chewed up last night or burned up last night. I'm glad about it, but would I do that? I don't know how to build a firebomb. I don't know where the bulldozers, like, it's not a recruiting device for sure, you know? So, so okay, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that one in a second. Um, are we living our values when we do that? One of the things about environmental activism if you get involved in really intense actions, especially actions that involve an element of force, it's hard not to be involved in deception, right? Most people don't, I mean, the Quakers do sometimes, right? Like break stuff and then sit down and say, I, you know, then they call the police and say, hey, I'm over here, I just broke this, right? But most people try to escape into the night and come back and do it again, right? So you're engaged in deception, probably even with people very close to you that you love. Um, you're, you're, you're engaged in something that could be, in, in Buddhism we sometimes say um, one of, the, one of the, um, you know, the rules to live by is don't take what is not given, don't steal, right? Eh, not my bulldozer, I just burned down, right? It's, you know, under the law it's a kind of a form of theft. Um, and, uh, and it hurts sometimes to be engaged in those kind of actions. It changes you on the inside, when you start to take on an alter ego and you're living a life of deception. Um, I lived a pretty, like, upright, out-in-the-world life, and then there, were, there was a period of my life where I was engaged in, in actions that involved more of a measure of force. And you, you pay a bit of a personal cost for it. I am, I am proud of people that are willing to pay those kind of costs with their own personal... Uh, inner life, but you need to know it's going to happen on the way in and you need to understand how you're going to kind of come out of that. I love hearing about a Native American tradition, and I don't remember what tribe it was, that before they went to war, the warriors were brought into a teepee and they were basically told, you're going crazy now. What you're going to do now is you're not going to be a human anymore. You're going to be an insane person. You're going to, you're going to do things that are crazy. And at the end of the battle, they were brought back in a teepee and said, you're not like that anymore. You're not like that anymore. You're coming back to being a person again. All right? That's not the way we are. You're back, you're back now. You're, you're being a person again. And so if you're willing to take on the way of the warrior, like that kind of forceful warrior, it's a, it's, it's a little crazy making. The other problem with actions that engage in force 
is they create a permission structure in our society that is not limited to our side. <laughs> I once went to the um, home uh, with a large group of people of the head of the California Department of Forestry who oversaw the destruction of uh, old growth redwood trees. We hung a banner in a tree outside our house. We screamed and shouted outside our house. Some people I think brought mud from a clear cut and threw it on the white siding of our house. Um, and nowadays people do that to abortion doctors. So is it okay when we do it, but not okay when they do it? You know, um, some of the um, Earth Liberation Front people, um, I think it was on the New Year's Eve of like Y2K, like December 31st, 1999, um, toppled a, no a bunch of power lines um, in Oregon um, with the message, I guess, of like the whole system is rotten. We have to bring it down, you know, a courageous action, um, an interesting message like the system is rotten to the core. Um, I can argue about electricity. I've, I've been in Soweto where um, a largely women-led group of people declared electricity as a basic human right and had learned how to illegally hook up deprived people to the electricity system to give them electricity, you know, because they considered it a basic human right to have electricity. But um, now one of, there, there's like a spate of, of right-wing people um, like destroying transformers all over the United States. To, with the idea that, like, hey, if there's no electricity, like, the system becomes ungovernable, you know? So I don't know that they got the idea from the Earth Liberation Front, but you definitely have heard people on the right saying, if they can do it, we can do it. So we, we have to, these are all things that are very uncomfortable, but have to be considered when we engage in actions that employ that kind of force. Of course, the ultimate force is war, right? And I've definitely met a lot of people that thought that we just have to arm ourselves the way the other side does, but it's not going to work. <laughs> I live in Oregon, which is a blue state, but it's, it's got some bright red areas. <laughs> and uh, we got militia. And um, I can assure you, uh, even if uh, I have friends that have guns, that our side isn't armed like their side. Our side will not be as quick to pull the trigger. Um, our side does not harbor the same level of aggression. Our side does not uh, feel like, by virtue of their white male, white supremacist traditions, that they have a right to take certain things from other people. Um, We're not as aggressive as they are. We have, I think, a moral structure that's more tight than they do. And um, we do not want to get into a situation where um, it comes to that. So we need to be really clear what kind of permission structures we're creating when it comes to actions of force, where we're trying, where, where our actions are trying to say, we need to bring the whole system down. You know who's going to hurt when the whole system goes down? The people that are already vulnerable. Old people, people of color, queer people, women. <laughs> if, it all goes, if it all goes crazy out there, it's not going to be good for, for most people. And it's not going to be good for the most vulnerable. That said, we come back to 
what Rachel said in the opening, we have to take much stronger action than we have. Everything that everybody has done up till now around climate change, you go back to like the earliest scientists working on it, people like screaming that the sky is falling, desperately trying to be listened to, the scientists, Al Gore holding the first, you know, Senate hearing on climate change, all of the Conference of Parties COP meetings held under the UN auspices internationally, Greta Thunberg, 350.org, the Sierra Club, Earth First, Greenpeace, everything we did last year, carbon emissions were higher than the year before. I mean, I've been doing this all my life, all my adult life pretty much, and I would never have believed. It, in 1990, I headed up a multi-person task force at EPA Region 2 in New York City, a thousand person office, thousand environmental professionals, where we got together and we decided what the number one, we, we ranked environmental issues for um, their threat to human health, their threat to human welfare, which basically meant the economic system in this case, and the threat to biodiversity. And climate change was number one on two of those lists and number two on the third one. We knew in 1990 as environmental professionals, this is the biggest environmental problem. I never in a million years would have thought that in 2023, our emissions would be going up from 2022. But that's where we are. And we all know, I don't want to do the litany of like horribles for you. I do not believe the apocalypse is coming. Um, and as I said earlier to Rachel, I do not believe that um, anyone out there is Luke Skywalker flying the X-Wing fighter into the Death Star and just has to have that one perfect shot and we're gonna take the system down. It's not what we have to do. We have to continue to do the hard work of organizing person by person, face to face, warm heart to warm heart, over and over again, year after year, and figuring out how to do that with actions that inspire people, that educate them, that empower them, and that activate them so that they can then replicate that action. And it's hard work and it has to pick up not only in pace and scale, but in intensity. So what does that mean? I mean, I, you know, I don't know. One of the best actions I ever did was I plopped myself down in front of the federal building in Eugene, Oregon, and um, I stopped eating anything but, but juice for 75 days in October through December of Eugene winter. Um, it was an action with a lot of intensity. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, it, it put my, I, I put myself out there. And it had huge, wonderful benefits. And by the way, we won that campaign. That was connected to that campaign with it. We built the fort across the road. We won that campaign. We stopped them from logging 9,000 acres of arson-burned forest. Um, that's you know, still there in our national forest. That was off limits to logging until an arsonist burned it, an arsonist who was never caught. Habitat conservation area for Northern Spotted Owl. Burned likely for that reason. Light it, fight it, and log it. Um, but we need to figure out how to engage in these kind of actions that um, are taking it to the next level. And I'm not saying don't engage in force, but I'm saying be darn careful where you do that it actually serves the cause and doesn't just make you feel better. So before I quit, um, I'm gonna give you, so it's hard to do this work, right? People burn out all the time. Um, <clears throat> You're not getting paid for the most part. Um, 
you're often getting, you know, shit on by society for doing the work that we're doing. Um, you're certainly, if you are making a paycheck, not making what you could make. Um, it's scary oftentimes. Um, and, you know, I've been to the funeral of a fellow activist that fell out of a tree set. Um, so it's hard to stick with it. And so now I'm going to give you my impossible formula for resilience. Um, you need to fall in love with climate change. <laughs> and you need to fall in love with species extinction. And I feel like I did this, and I feel like I did this through practice. And what I mean by that is you have to have the radical acceptance that this is all Earth and this is what's happening right now. I can't explain why she's squirting all that oil out and letting one species run amok and, and causing a giant blanket over the atmosphere and heating up, but that's what Earth is doing right now. Because we're, you know, as much as humans like to think we're separate from other species, like this right here is what, thousands of species, you know? like just inside my body alone, not to mention the whole rest of species that travel with humans, not to mention, you know, the tree outside that's providing the oxygen that keeps us alive, right? We're so interconnected, but we only like to think about it for the good things. <laughs> but we're also interconnected in this craziness that's going on right now. And there's a way, I think, to have a love of the earth that includes climate change, a kind of acceptance that can cause a settling within our our, our bodies that can help lead to resilience moving forward with action. My, my, uh, another way of expressing the formula is, um, or another way of expressing a formula that I think is related is um, hopeless but not helpless. I think we need to be hopeless. I will tell you right now, the earth will not be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, your idea of it. <laughs> it will not be your idea that tomorrow. We all know what could happen. We all know what could happen if people treated each other with decency. If oil companies were, were, were disempowered, if corporate executives that are like robber barons were disempowered. We all know what the world could look like. We all know that we, we can replace the streets with gardens. We all know that we can live in peace and have a higher standard of living for more people in a better way. But, but it's not going to happen. And I'm not saying it's never going to happen, and I'm not saying it's not going to happen in part, but it's not going to happen like we hope it's going to happen. And if you keep living into that hope, you're going to get crushed over and over and over again. This is the letting go of attachment of a lot of spiritual practice. This is the radical acceptance of a lot of spiritual practice. But it's very easy for people to become hopeless and then think that they're helpless. It's very easy to fall from hopelessness into nothing I do matters. But in my tradition, everything you do matters. Every act of body, speech, and mind, everything you do physically in the body, the way you open the doorknob on the way that you walked into the room and the way you open it as you walk back out onto the world matters. For instance, if you're present as you're doing it. For instance, as if there's love in your heart as you're doing it. It matters. Everything matters. Everything you say matters. It's not just what you do, it's what you say. And in Buddhism we believe, and I thoroughly believe it, what you think matters.
because thoughts in your head manifest in the world. And so you couldn't be helpless if you wanted to. Or maybe help has a positive connotation, but you can't keep from affecting the world whether you want to or not. And if you're not careful, you're just leading it down the wrong path again. So understanding that we have to go into the world without believing that our hopes and dreams for what the world can be will be realized, without knowing what's going to happen. That 25 years from now, one of you could be standing up here giving a lecture, and maybe the carbon emissions are still going up. Maybe. I don't think so. But maybe. And then we still have to keep working. Because like I said, sometime we're coming back into balance. And it's a question of what's here for, for ourselves, for our kids and grandkids, for the next generations that are coming, and of course for those species themselves. So, so love all of the world. This is what all the traditions are teaching us. And um, including, including this body and mind, right? That's the easy one for many people to leave out. And um, at the same time, don't think the world is going to be what you dream it to be. It's all just dreams going on up there. All right. With that, I'm going to thank you. I'll give you a little bow.